0: Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFRL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Ruth Dayermont, a senior lecturer in the Department of War Studies at King's College London, and a specialist on Russian foreign and security policy, U.S.-Russia relations, and European security. Now, Ruth is a first-time guest, and it's great to have her on the program. Thanks very much for joining me today, Ruth.
1: Thanks. Thank you. Thanks very much for inviting me.
0: All right. Well, welcome. Um, it's great to have you on the on the program. Now, I, I'm going to preface my first question by saying um, that while a few guests uh, have mentioned Crimea in the past, I don't think I've ever made it a topic of this podcast. And I'm going to provide, um, bear with me, because I'm going to provide some background to kind of explain why. Um, Remember, before Russia launched the large-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, many observers, uh, including me, believed that, that it would not happen, the invasion would not happen. And many also believed that if it did happen, Russia would succeed fairly quickly in taking more territory than it already occupied, perhaps a lot more, uh, and that it might succeed in subjugating Ukraine, either removing President Volodymyr Zelensky's government or or forcing it to make major concessions to Moscow. So there was, at least in my recollection, not much talk about at that time about the fate of Crimea, which Russia had occupied in 2014 and baselessly claimed was now part of Russia as it continues to decline. When the invasion did occur uh, in February 2022, an initial push toward Kiev was thwarted. Russian forces withdrew from northern Ukraine, uh, and Russian President Vladimir Putin's goal of subjugating Ukraine quickly became increasingly unrealistic. Now, Russian forces do control more territory than they did before February 2022 uh, in the Donbass, and also southwest of the Donbass, uh, including a so-called land corridor reaching from the Russian border uh, to the isthmus uh, that connects mainland Ukraine uh, with Crimea. But uh, Russian forces lost substantial portions of the land that they had taken uh, in the early weeks of the invasion when Ukraine mounted counter-offensives in the east and south uh, last year. Uh, that included the city of, of Kherson, which Ukraine took back, which is kind of north uh, of the, of the um, isthmus that north of Crimea. And now Ukraine is expected to soon mount a major new counteroffensive. Uh, at least one Ukrainian official says it's already begun. Uh, and one main goal of this counteroffensive may be to sever that uh, land quarter and leave the actual bridge from Russia to Crimea across the Kerch Strait, as Russia's only mode of access to the peninsula other than by sea. Uh, Now, I don't want to get ahead of events, certainly, um, but I've provided this background to try to explain sort of why there is now, and has been for many months, plenty of talk about Crimea uh, and its fate, um, including the question of I mean, Kiev and and the West, of course, um, reject uh, Russia's claim to Crimea, um, and that's been constant um, since 2014, Uh, but including the question of uh, whether it would be wiser for Ukraine to try to take Crimea back by force, if it can, or to refrain from taking that step, at least at this point. Uh, There are some uh, voices on on both sides of that argument and and some some gray areas. Ruth, you wrote an interesting thread recently uh, in which you addressed calls in the West for Zelensky's government uh, to make concessions on Crimea. And you came out against that, arguing, among other things, and correct me if I'm wrong, that pushing Ukraine to abandon Crimea uh, would not be a safe option for the United States or, or for Europe. What I'd like to do is kind of ask you to go through this, kind of explain uh, what's making some people call for such concessions uh, in your view and why uh, why you believe that's not the right call.
1: Yes, thanks. So uh, I think, you know, it's probably useful to to go back uh, a little bit um, to actually to before the um, the invasion in February 2022 um, and to look at the kind of idea position that a lot of policymakers and people who influence policymakers had I think in Europe um, you know between the period of the annexation of Crimea and and the start of, of Russia's kind of latest war against Ukraine. Um, uh, one thing that I found and I know I wasn't alone was that if you talked to people you know not just in the UK but but elsewhere in in Europe, about the situation in Ukraine before February 2022, there was often a distinction made between um, Crimea and the other territory that Russia had, in effect, occupied in eastern Ukraine. And it was not unusual, I think, for, for policymakers, for people who advised policymakers, to treat Crimea as different uh, from, from the rest of kind of Russian-controlled Ukrainian territory. And that's something that's persisted, and I think, become even more evident since the start of the war in February 2022, partly because all these questions are coming out in the open in a way that they hadn't been before. Um, So I think, you know, it might be useful to just talk briefly about why I think some people are calling for concessions on Crimea <clears throat> um, and, and then why I think that's not a sensible idea. So I think there are several reasons why um, some people, I mean, some media commentators, some analysts, and you know, some people advising policymakers, um, perhaps less so than policymakers themselves. Um, but there are various reasons I think why why these people are calling for concessions on Crimea. And the most obvious, I think, is there a, a, there has been a perception that it's not militarily winnable, that Russia is simply dug in too deeply, too effectively in Crimea for Ukraine to actually achieve a military victory. Um, But paradoxically, at the same time, I think there's an anxiety, as well as the anxiety that, that Ukraine can't win, there's an anxiety that Ukraine might win, that they might actually be able to achieve a military victory in Crimea. And the reason why that seems to make people very anxious, and I think this is the most important factor in all of this, actually, um, is fear of what the Russian response would be. Um, There is a view, I think, that the Russian response to the loss of Crimea or the threatened loss of Crimea would be significantly different from uh, the loss of other territory that they've occupied in Ukraine. Um, And there is a fear particularly Um, of what that would mean in relation to the use of nuclear weapons. So there is an anxiety amongst some people that the status of Crimea is so particular compared to other Ukrainian-occupied territory that if there was a threat of losing it for, for Putin, for the Russian government, then that would be an incentive for the Russian government to consider using Nuclear weapons, uh, almost certainly tactical nuclear weapons, not um, anything larger than that. Although clearly that would be horrendous in itself, and that anxiety uh, about the possibility that that the loss of Crimea could trigger Russia using nuclear weapons derives from a sense that the Russian government regard Crimea as fundamentally different um, from the rest of these occupied territories, Um, both Russia as a whole, uh, also the Russian government, and also Putin personally. We know if you go back and look at what Putin has said about Crimea and go right back to um, the period of annexation in 2014, um, uh, Putin talked about Crimea as historically part of Russia and the foundation place of um, uh, the russian orthodoxy so russian religion um, and russian national identity so it's been turned into this space of um core russian national identity in the way that putin and others have talked about it and unfortunately that seems to have had some traction with some people in the west as well again if you if you talk to some people, I mean, policymakers, people around them, you do still regrettably occasionally hear them saying that, um, that Crimea is essentially Russian. I mean, this isn't a widespread view, thankfully, um, but this, this Russian governmental view of Crimea is essentially Russian has, has had some kind of traction in the West. And so I think what that does is create an understanding or a, an anxiety that this very special status of Crimea could lead to to Russia using nuclear weapons if there is a feared loss. Now, I think that this is wrong, Um, uh, irrespective of the moral case, which I'm not going to touch on here. I mean, I don't think there's any debate about this. You know, Crimea is Ukrainian territory. It's legally recognized. It's been legally recognized by the Russian government in, in treaties in the past. But even setting all of that aside, I think this view is is fundamentally wrong. Um, I mean, I would caveat what I'm about to say by saying that we can never be sure um, that, that the decisions that people take in war are correct, of course, but also um, that in relation to nuclear weapons, you know, it is not clear what the right answer is here, right? Um, and all possible paths have risk attached to them. So I'm not saying that it's impossible that the Russian government might use or consider using um, weapons of mass destruction if uh, their occupation of Crimea was threatened. Uh, But I do think that actually this is um, not a significantly greater risk uh, than other risks that are involved in not doing something about Crimea. So, I mean, I, I think one thing to note is that you know, the Russian government has been threatening terrible things um, in relation to Western assistance to Ukraine for almost the whole war. And, and to date, it hasn't followed through on any of those threats. Um, you know, so I think that's, that's one thing to, to kind of bear in mind, which is, again, not a reason to be complacent, but it is something to note. Um, and we know that clearly there has been dialogue with the Russian government, um, by people in the West, about you know the, the very very serious consequences that would uh, follow for Russia were Russia to attempt to use uh, nuclear or other weapons of mass destruction. I, beyond that, I mean, I think the reason why uh, Crimea uh, remains a significant security risk uh, it, it, as long as it is in Russian hands is that it its strategic position, Um, you know the the role that it has for the wider Black Sea region means that as long as Russia occupies it, it, Russia will have the the capability to to present as a security threat, uh, not just to Ukraine, but not just indeed to to NATO, um, but to the whole Black Sea region. And that clearly has very significant security implications for the states beyond the Black Sea region, um, you know, across Europe, and indeed, therefore, for the United States, because everyone is a member of NATO. I think it's, you know, one thing that isn't recognised often enough, and it's important to, to talk about it, is that the, the great, kind of significant, permissive cause of um, both the 2022 war and the 2014 annexation of Crimea. Uh, was not as, um, you know, Russia and some Russia apologists would like to say, um, you know, NATO expansion, but it was the fact that the Russian uh, armed forces were already located in Crimea and had been in Crimea for the entire post-Soviet period. So in the 1990s, the Ukrainian government and the Russian government, after a very long and complicated process, ended up signing a basing agreement, which allowed the Russian Black Sea Fleet to remain in Sevastopol uh, in Crimea. And that meant that Russia had a military footprint in Crimea, a very significant one. Um, The the base or the bases in uh, Crimea were and are hugely important for the Russian armed forces, and so in 2014, Uh, When the Revolution of Dignity occurred, uh, this generated clearly considerable anxiety in Russia, in the Russian government, about the fate of um, its bases in Crimea. And this seems to have been one of the things that drove the annexation. Of course, once the annexation had happened, that facilitated the war in 2022, because clearly, as we know, the Crimean Peninsula was central um, to the, the start of the war. Russia's invasion in 2022. So this has been a problem for Ukrainian security for the whole of the, the period since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And um, it, it remains, I think, a wider problem for European security and for NATO security. You know, as, as long as Russia is in this space, it has the capacity, I think, to cause a significant kind of security threat uh, to, to the region, um, to the continent, and um, to, to those connected to the continent beyond it. So I, I think for those reasons, um, while acknowledging the risks that come with, um, you know, Russia losing its control over occupied Crimea, at the same time, I think we need to recognize that the other risks are at least as significant, at, at least they are, in my opinion, and there's a wider point here, <clears throat> which is that something people are understandably reluctant to recognize, um, which is that there are really no kind of good options. There are no safe options at this point. So the, the Ukrainian government, um, the governments of NATO states are all left with choices between difficult and dangerous options. And for me, allowing Russia to remain in Crimea is not the best option
0: Thanks very much, uh, Ruth. That's 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 uh, fascinating. I, I, I'm just going to ask a follow-up question to that, which is, uh, I think you've focused, fair to say, you focused mostly on, in terms of uh, the the threats that would remain and 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 perhaps grow if, you know, if Russia were to uh, remain in control of Crimea. Um, would be uh, sort of military threats, uh, you know the, the influence in the Black Sea and the the ability to you know to to maybe launch new attacks. Is there also, and, and you may have mentioned this as well, is there also kind of a i wouldn't I guess I wouldn't say moral, but is there of of an aspect of it in terms of, well, this is again sort of to some degree rewarding russia or or you know Russia would see, okay, they're letting us have Crimea, so um, you know, so we're, we're gonna we're gonna take more again. I mean, I would say that that was one of the factors in in in, in uh, that led from twenty fourteen to twenty twenty two.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I I entirely agree with that. I mean, I think there are two possibilities, or there probably a range of possibilities, but but they group around, I think, two outcomes in particular, you know, if Crimea isn't liberated, one would be, and I, I find it hard to imagine a scenario in which this occurs, but, you know, a situation in which the international community recognises Crimea as, as Russian, right, and, you know, forces, the Ukrainian government in effect tries to coerce them into to signing a peace agreement that, that recognises Crimea as Russian. I don't see that as likely. Uh, uh although you know i've been wrong before and, and like you um was wrong about the war i did not expect this war to start um or at least not on the scale it did but the other kind of uh, possibility and the one that i've always thought <clears throat> would be the most likely would be a kind of variant of i suppose of the minsk agreements um in which although crimea might be recognized formerly is still being part of Ukraine, um, you know, there were no steps taken to actually reunite Crimea with Ukraine. And in fact, you know, there is pressure to have a kind of de facto recognition of Crimea as as no longer part of Ukraine. And I think that's, I agree with you, I think that's enormously dangerous uh, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, particularly because I do think it would, it would encourage further adventurism on the part of the Russian government, you know, when they get to a point at which they, they would be capable of it again, because, of course, it's very difficult to see how, um, given the state of the Russian military after a year and a quarter of war, very difficult to see how they could um, launch anything like this again in the near future. But nevertheless, I mean, I think it would, be, it would be dangerous in that regard. And of course, also, it would be essentially saying that um, annexation of other states' territories is something that the West can quite happily live with. And once, once the kind of prohibition on that is lifted, then the world, I think, starts to look much more dangerous in all sorts of ways. So, so I entirely agree with you. I, I think it's a threat. It would be a threat um, in terms of future Russian behaviour. Uh, I also think it would be a wider destabilising threat. I mean, we we see that, or we hear that the Russian government is is very against. It says now the idea of a rules based international order, something that it claimed to be a leader of uh, up until 2022. Um, clearly, you know, allowing states, rewarding states uh, for illegal invasions and annexations. That would that would kill off the the rules based international order pretty quickly, I think.
0: Right. So even even if Ukraine were to take, you know, take back all all its other territory, you'd still have that huge uh, that huge problem. All right. Well, thanks very much. Um, Now, the other question I wanted to ask uh, is actually a bit broader, perhaps. Um, It also stems from something you mentioned on Twitter. about a class at KCL. You wrote that at the last meeting of the class, um, sorry, uh, one of your classes for the semester um, uh, addressed, quote, how we see Russia's international situation in May 2023, that is now, and um, the threats and opportunities that creates for other states, unquote. Uh, You wrote ahead of the class that it should be very interesting, and I also find this idea very interesting. So, Ruth, I was wondering if you'd be willing to share uh, some of your thoughts on the matter uh, and if if you think there's time, maybe a couple of points others made about uh, about this, about Russia's international situation as it stands today and the threats and opportunities it creates for for other countries.
1: Yes, of course. So, yeah, this was the discussion that um, that I, I had with my master's students a couple of weeks ago. And um, thank you to, to any of them who are listening for a very, very interesting discussion. I, you know, my view of, of Russia's position in, in May 2023 <clears throat> is that it, it's really quite hard to imagine how much worse things could be um, in, in terms of Russia's international position. Um, I think you know, if, if you go back and, and think about um, the way that Putin and other members of the Russian government were talking about the aims of the war before the invasion and in the early days <clears throat> after the war began, then it, it was all about <clears throat> excuse me, restoring Russian great power status, um, pushing back. NATO back to the kind of mid-1990s position, resetting the strategic map of Europe, you know, Russia emerging as one of the key pillars of an emergent multipolar order. And all of that has been, not only not happened as a result of the war, but Russia's aspirations in all these areas have been devastated by the war. So, I mean, just to take a few things, If we we look at what has happened in the last year and a quarter, Russia's status as a military great power, as one of the most fearsome uh, conventional armed forces in the world, has been radically undermined by the performance of the Russian armed forces themselves. I mean, it's been disastrous for Russia's military reputation. And of course, Russia has now lost an unimaginable number of individuals and staggering amounts of equipment so not only is its reputation as a kind of military great power shredded basically um, but also its capacity uh, to act in the future as I was just saying has been radically undermined um, so it's it's lost status as a military great power it's also greatly reduced in its capability capacity to influence the west i think um, which is something that clearly the russian government had been quite invested in uh, for for many years and its reduced capability to influence is evident both in the kind of positive areas so clearly russian diplomacy in the west is now um, you know not effective to to, to understate the case um, but it, it's also lost influence, I think, to, in a coercive sense. So the coercive capability in, in relation to, um, to the West has been greatly undermined. You know, Russia's ability to use energy as a coercive instrument has been reduced. Obviously, the fear of Russia as a military power is greatly reduced for the reasons that I just said. Um, Russia's capacity to influence um, domestic discussions I think in the West it's much weaker than people would have expected. Um, you know, certainly in the UK, it's very striking that the you know the support for Ukraine and opposition to Russia really goes across the political spectrum, except for the real extremes of right and left, and that's that's surprising compared to the position before. Um, there's also been much more seriously, I would say, for for Russia a really significant loss of influence in relation to its neighbours. And this is the case really across all the regions of of the territory of the former Soviet Union, if I can put it like that. Um, As, in fact, one of my students pointed out very sensibly, you know, if you look at countries like Ukraine, also Moldova, um, there hasn't just been a shift away from Russia and towards the West, you know, in security terms, but there's actually been a kind of shift in values um, and identity. And that's very significant because that's something it's very hard um, to reverse. But clearly we've seen a reduction of Russian influence um, in uh, Central Asia, in places like Moldova and obviously Ukraine. Um, And at the same time, Russia has become hugely more dependent on China. the, The relationship with China used to be more or less, you know, to, to a greater or lesser degree, uh, a relationship of equals, or, or there was a you know fiction that it was a relationship of equals. Um, that's really gone now, I think, and, and I don't think anybody is under any illusions about the Russia-China relationship really being, you know, a, a dependent relationship now. Um, and there's no obvious way back from any of this, so, you know, Russian influence, Russian military, great power status, um, the relationship with China, the loss of influence uh, amongst its neighbors. Very hard to see how Russia comes back from that. The one area that um, I think there has been a marginal shift um, in, in ways that don't damage Russia, perhaps, is, is Russia's engagement with the states of the global south. Um, clearly, the Russian government has made a huge effort to bring the states of the global south on side in relation to the war. And although we haven't seen outright support in most cases for, for the Russian government, there is clearly much less opposition to the war, much less hostility to Russia generally in, for example, states some states in Latin America or in, in sub-Saharan Africa um, than there is in the West. So I mean that's not really a positive, particularly because, they, you know, there haven't been you know, huge improvements in the, the Russia Global South relationship. I would say, but compared to the absolute disaster of of Russia's situation in relation to really everyone else, um, that's that's the most positive I think that you know position that Russia is in at the moment.
0: Uh, thanks very much. That's a great uh, kind of synopsis of, of, of the, the position Russia's in. Um, I'm going to uh, open it up to questions. Thanks very much, Ruth, for your for your um, your insights. I'm going to open it up to questions. Uh, we can start. Uh, I do see one um, listener who'd like to ask a question, uh, Pyotr Kurzin,
2: I believe you can go ahead and ask. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Um, Hi, Ruth. Nice to hear from you again. Um, You know, I I, I agree with a lot of what you said, but unfortunately, you know, I I, I look at the world and, and, and the way that Russia continues to be, at least under Putin, you know, pretty resilient. And the election results with Turkey just yesterday, I think, illustrate that, you know, it's very much what Putin wanted. Uh, if i understand correctly i think he's actually delayed the, the need of a payment by turkey for some certain energy as a way to sort of try and uh, incentivise erdogan to, to really you know win the elections so there continues to be this holding out of certain strong men uh, in areas and 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 despite everything that the west has tried to do with the sanctions uh, the, the economy is you know uh, is 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 ticking by it's not great but neither is it you know cataclysmically collapsing as we thought it might um, and it's also the problem that Russia has so many fingers in different pies, right? That's part of the reason I think the US didn't designate Russia a terror state, a sponsor of terrorism, because it, it just leads to too many potential spillover effects with North Korea, Syria and, and, and other regions. But my question for you more broadly is, um, you know, Crimea has obviously always been the uh, potential, I think, genuine red lines. The Russians, I think, can use the term red lines a lot and not really mean it, but what do you say could happen with Crimea if the Ukrainian counteroffensive didn't succeed as as we, you know, are, are suggested it may? Um, and, and, and it suddenly becomes apparent that Ukraine doesn't have the capacity to, to, to win the war outrightly. Do you think that Crimea could genuinely become a negotiation piece uh, in any negotiations? I understand that's still very far away, given both sides. Uh, comments but just curious how you think what could happen to Crimea in the context of the Ukrainian counteroffensive? Thank you.
1: Okay um, yes thanks lots of very interesting points there I mean I just just go back to your your previous comments before I move on to the issue of Crimea and say you know I, I don't think anybody sensible um, or, or hopefully <laughs> not too many people, you know, expected the total and utter collapse of Russia or the Russian economy instantly, um, you know, in, in 2022, all of this is a, you know, is a much kind of longer term process than I think people expected or perhaps wanted, um, both the war itself and the consequences for Russia. Um, clearly, you know, Russia hasn't, the Russian government hasn't been completely um, you know, stripped of all its capacity to influence, um, I can't get into the Turkish elections because I'm not a Turkey specialist and I wouldn't dare to to, to try to comment. Um, but but that's I think you know pretty different from um, the the capacity to to influence that we have seen in the past, and certainly compared to what the Russian government wants, it's pretty limited. Um, and again, with the economy, you know. I don't think we can, or we should ever have expected a kind of dramatic collapse. But um, the consequences for the Russian economy have been awful. I mean, the the, the economic loss resulting from sanctions, and of course the the, the economic costs of the war itself, um, are staggering. But on on Crimea, I mean, we we don't know. Um, I would also say that you know whatever happens in the coming counteroffensive or the current counteroffensive, if it has indeed started, uh, you know, the outcome of that isn't going to be necessarily the outcome of the war itself. I mean, unfortunately, I I don't know anybody who thinks that the war is going to be over this year, really. I don't don't think I've ever spoken to anyone who thought that. Um, So, you know, whatever happens in relation to Crimea in the next six months, say, may not be definitive. In terms of a peace settlement, I, as I said, I don't see any situation in which anybody agrees to, to, to kind of coerce Ukraine to hand over Crimea. Uh, it's possible that further down the line, um, we may see attempts by some states um, or some people within some states to pressure Ukraine into concessions on Crimea. Um But I think, you know, anything that that doesn't um, actually hand or doesn't recognize that that Crimea is Ukrainian and that doesn't allow for Ukraine to liberate Crimea, I think is going to be deeply problematic for the reasons that I've talked about. But also because, and and this is something that Western governments, I think, need to recognize perhaps slightly more than they do, um, what you would create would be a frozen conflict and you know anybody who knows anything about um russia's relationship to its neighbors since the collapse of the soviet union knows that frozen conflicts have been a kind of favorite tool of the russian government uh to continue to exert influence in countries that don't really want russia to have influence um and these conflicts don't go away they you know they flare up again and we saw that in relation to nagorno karabakh in, in 2020 for example um and you know the frozen conflict in south ossetia in georgia was used as um as an excuse to um to start a war with georgia in 2008 so so these are um you know these are conflicts that uh that persist, And I think as long as there is um, Russian occupation of Crimea of some form, then the capacity of Russia um, to use that, that frozen conflict in effect as a mechanism to, to interfere with Ukraine and to assert, um, you know, to assert its will in relation to the West, that will, that will persist. So, so I think it would be very dangerous to go down that track.
0: Okay, thanks very much, Ruth, uh, and thanks for the question, uh, Piotr. I have uh, another question uh, from Peter S. Um, Please go ahead when you have the speaker privilege. Peter S., uh, your mic is off. But I think you can turn your mic on and ask a question. Or sorry, you 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 should be able to speak by by um, turning your mic on. Um, we'll see if we can get to that.
3: Hi, was uh, that for
0: me? <laughs> Yes, yes, Peter. Yes, sorry. Um,
3: Yeah, can I just bring in... I've heard what Ruth said, and I totally, 100% agree with her very well-put-over arguments. I just want to add something else which is really important to understand. Um, That is that uh, with uh, NATO and the West, uh, Biden told... Russia that any nuclear use and this is even a small battlefield tactical weapon would have severe consequences now what he meant by severe consequences was not a nuclear retaliation but he would have to literally destroy the uh, Black Sea fleet and literally have to kick russia out now this has two consequences and i very much believe that uh, this is the the whole reason for the slow input of weapons the slow input of the f-16s the reluctance because should uh ukraine get the f-16s the possibility of taking Crimea, Crimea is quite large. Now, what would happen then is that should Putin be a very naughty boy, uh, that would then directly uh, bring the West into conflict with, with uh, Russia. They would have to uh, give severe consequences or they would lose total face in the world as a power. So I think the reluctance is more to do with uh, the West are really scared of being dragged into this war, Um, and that is the main, main reason. But I think they have to do that because... There has been this reluctance right through the whole um, the whole invasion. And had they been firm at the beginning, Putin would have never had gone into Ukraine. Had the West, as soon as they smelt um, Russia doing their special exercises, uh, if they had then put equal exercises by NATO into ukraine they put uh, american warships into the black sea then putin would never have dared to go in they have allowed it and uh, i think you have to look at what does putin actually want from this (laughs) crimea is like the heart and the land grab Mariupol to Crimea is like the main archery and to a certain extent I think Putin played back moot to keep uh, Ukraine away from severing the main archery to the coast because uh, with the Sea of Azov, which was Peter the Great's great wish or so Putin said, that takes 80% of Ukraine's coastline. And then Putin would have gone on down to um, Odessa, Odessa Oblast and Moldova, and probably uh, Georgia as well. So he would have effectively built a fortress around um, Ukraine so he could control. He could control everything and keep it firmly under his foot. He still has those plans,
1: Peter. Can I just jump in because you're covering a huge amount, and I quite like to respond to some of what you say, if that's yeah, okay. Yeah, sure.
3: Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, so, I agreed with everything you said. So,
1: yeah. so I, I just, I think you're absolutely right that the you know one of the the reasons why this war has happened um, is a. I don't know, very important, you know, the, the major kind of, as I said, commissive cause for this war is um, misperception both on the, the western side and the Russian side, I think. I think you're absolutely right that um, that western countries, certainly not the US perhaps, you know, which had a clearer view of the possibility of an invasion, but, but western countries, um, I think in, in the last few years, um, since 2014 haven't really understood um you know the the risks presented by by russian activity in ukraine um both to ukraine and to themselves but clearly also the the russian government fundamentally miscalculated the 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 consequences from the west of invasion um how the west would respond i think you know had had the west had nato states properly understood um, the risks that they were taking by, by not, um, you know, engaging more firmly with Russia before 2022. And had Russia, had Putin properly understood, um, the likely consequences from the West of invading in 2022, I I don't think we would be where we are now. Now on, on the nuclear issue, as I've said on Twitter, um, and and other much wiser people than me have said elsewhere, you know, the, the thing about deterrence is right, it, it has to go both ways. Um and the the problem with hesitating about Crimea um is that it seems to suggest that that Russian deterrence works and Western deterrence doesn't work so well. And that's extremely dangerous for, for everyone. Uh because once deterrence doesn't work, once it starts to fail, you know, that's when things become more unstable um, and the possibility of of nuclear use um, becomes greater. So I think several things have to happen. Everyone has to be clear about the consequences of Russian nuclear use. And although we don't know exactly what the Americans have been saying to the Russians, um, you know, it is clear, and, and Biden has said in public, he has made it clear, that the consequences would be extremely severe were Russia to use nuclear weapons. Um, and the fact is they haven't done so far. And that, I think, you know, may indicate something about the effectiveness of, of American kind of warnings and messaging. Um, but, you know, that then means that, um, as you say, you know, were there to be a, a Russian... Use of nuclear weapons, there would have to be an American response. Um, otherwise, and again, I totally agree with you. You know, the, the credibility of um, the United States would be at stake. The credibility of NATO would be at stake. And this is why the whole situation is so extremely dangerous. Um, why I say that there are no safe options because the the possibility of um, of the current war widening um, and pulling in the West is, you know, it's something that we have to acknowledge, right? I, I, everyone is working, I think, extremely hard to prevent that from happening. Um, but this is why I say, you know, that there's no safe outcome, there, there's no safe choice. Um, uh, none of us want to be thinking about these kinds of questions or issues. Um, but unfortunately we have to.
0: All right. Thanks. Thanks very much. Uh, that was a, for your comment, uh, Peter, and and for your great answer, Ruth. Um, we have little time left, but I think we would have time for one more short question, if uh, if there are any. Um...
2: Well, I've got my hand raised, if I can go ahead.
0: Uh, let's just wait see if anyone else has one first, <laughs> if you don't mind. Right, OK. So I'll just give it a moment. Okay,
2: if not, uh, Piotr, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think um, I mean there's a million and one things that we just covered there because Peter uh, talked a lot about different things. Um, I, I guess I would frame it in this way, which is, you know, Ruth, I, I you know, I, I agree with a lot of what you said, but equally, the the very website that we're having this conversation on has obviously become inundated with very pro or Russian sympathetic uh, narratives. In the past few months, and that is um, that is that is a difficult thing to 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 counteract because a lot of people just look at the West and the double standards, and uh, and they say, well, what Russia is doing in Ukraine is no different to what you know the US is is, has has done, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So, my biggest question I always like to ask people of your stature is, you know, one, how do we deal with this? How do we better combat against this um, uh, whataboutism? Um, but also, secondly, as I asked uh, Alexander Vinman on my podcast back in the fall, uh, do you not think that there is a little bit of hubris that the West has had in recent years over uh, the NATO-Russian relationship uh, and that had there not been a better re- uh, engagement with Russia over, say, the 2000s, uh, some of these crises, conflicts and, and, and so on could have been averted? Or is, just, is there a fundamental um, inability to do engage Putin because of who he is and what he wants, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, it it does. I mean the 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 Russian NATO relationship. That's a that's a whole other topic, which I would be very very happy to talk about. But um, I guess we don't really have time. I mean, what I would say is I think actually I think the the Western and particularly American hubris um, was something that was a feature of the nineteen nineties. I don't think it was as much a feature later. I mean, perhaps uh, well, yeah, the the early noughties. Um, but the real um, I think mistakes made in the West were made in, in the nineties, um not in the decision to um enlarge NATO, but in, in the the way that um the United States um in particular interacted with um with the Russian government, um the attitude towards Russia I think was very damaging. Um, in terms of kind of disinformation and what aboutism? I mean as, as I said, I mean, I think in, in the West, actually, it's been less successful um, than many of us might have expected, given Russia's much vaunted um, capacities in this area, uh, which were widely talked about um, before the war. Certainly, if you look at, um, even, even in the United States, I mean, the last um, opinion poll that I saw still showed um that more republicans were in favor of supporting ukraine than, than were against and, and that you know nationally there was more support for ukraine than there was was opposition to helping um in britain it is very striking as i said that the um the consensus really across the political not just the mainstream but really pushing out towards the right and left um is strongly in favor of continuing to support Ukraine and and doing everything that we're doing at the moment and and, continuing to supply more weapons in future and give more support. And that's true from the left of the Labour Party to the right of the Conservative Party and and spaces in between. Um, It's really only these minor kind of small extremities on the right and left where you hear kind of Russian talking points being recycled it's different in every country of course but i mean we just haven't seen the russian disinformation lines on ukraine getting the kind of traction that i think as i say many of us expected where there does seem to be more success as i said at the start was was in is in relation to you know the so-called global south um and it's here that you can see russia trying to um, you know, warm over old kind of Soviet era narratives about, um, you know, Moscow as, as the great kind of advancer of the anti-colonial struggle, uh, which given that it's in- engaged in the colonial war at the moment is, um, is you know, even for, for Putin, kind of impressive level of hypocrisy. Um, but I, I guess the question is what the effects are of that. You know, how has it significantly changed the outcome of the war and i don't think at the moment we're seeing that it, it, it is making a big difference now you know in the longer term is russian influence in other parts of the world problematic if you think that the current russian government is problematic well well, yes i i think it's something that western governments and indeed ukraine itself didn't pay enough attention to at the start of the war It's obviously something they're trying to play catch up on at the moment um but you know, it's, it's very easy for, you know, governments in other parts of the world to say, look, you know, this isn't our war, right? You know, it's it, it's not happening on our doorstep. We have our own very significant security and other challenges in our region. It's a European problem. So it's up to Europeans to sort out. And I, I don't think that's an enormously surprising position for them to take.
0: Uh, thanks very much, um... Thanks. I, I, I hate to do this uh, when there is still at least uh, one question, but I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to uh, wrap it up because we're, we're out of time. Um, but uh, thanks. Thanks for your questions. Uh, I think maybe we have a, a topic for Ruth's next appearance, if she's willing. Um, and uh, I'd just like to thank you, Ruth. Uh, thanks very much for joining me.
1: Thank you very much. And yes, always very, very happy to, to be on this uh, to be on this podcast. But thank you for asking me.
0: Okay, I uh, hope to see you again uh, fairly soon. Um, once again, I've been speaking to Ruth Dermont, a senior senior lecturer in the Department of War Studies at King's College London, and a specialist on Russian foreign and security policy, U.S.-Russia relations, and European security. And I think we touched on all of those things uh, today. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, we'll be taking a break next week, but I'll be back on June 12th for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia. Meanwhile, please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, on Friday. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your questions.